Welcome to Try, Try Again. If you're listening, maybe you're thinking about therapy, or you called me and I directed you here. Maybe you're just curious. Maybe you're a friend or family wondering what I've been up to. Whatever the reason, I'm glad you made it here. There is great joy in life, but we also face tremendous challenges and tragedies. How do they not defeat us, take us under? How do we grow or at times simply survive? It is my hope this podcast will help you to learn about yourself, provide resources and interviews with experts, and gain an understanding of how therapy might help. We'll talk about topics ranging from the true meaning of self-care, nutrition and exercise, living with depression and anxiety, triggers, trauma, and all under the umbrella of relationship with ourselves and others. Feel free to make suggestions for upcoming topics or request further information you might need at my website, katherinekempvelez.com. Today we will review seven easy and difficult, because most things in life are both easy and difficult, suggestions to securing and preparing for a therapist. First, let me start by telling you a story. Londa had begun to notice changes in her daughter's behavior. It seemed almost overnight Tessa had transformed from a fun-loving, enthusiastic, and friendly soul to a girl with roller coaster moods, reckless and impulsive behavior, and defiant outbursts. Londa sought out the counsel of family and friends who told her it was just normal teenage behavior. They jumped into stories of their own experiences with their teenagers, thus proving their points that no outside intervention was needed, and then quickly moved on to happier topics. And for a while, Londa listened to well-meaning loved ones, ignoring the nagging, unsettling feeling in her heart and head. As things continued to decline for Tessa, including her grades and her relationships, Londa was contacted by Tessa's school counselor. It was after this conversation that Londa and Tessa began the journey of seeking out mental health services, which for some can be frustrating and difficult, especially those who don't have resources such as insurance, money, or support. Londa struggled finding help, and Tessa argued she didn't need it, refusing to participate. In the end, They did nothing, feeling overwhelmed by the process and hoping Tessa would just get better, do better as she promised. But she didn't do better. She did much worse. Her grades plummeted. She self-medicated with alcohol and oxy as well as her smartphone and eventually sex. She knew thousands of virtual people but had no real friends except those who wanted to do drugs. She began stealing to satisfy her addictions and eventually after years of abusing her body, her brain, and her relationships, she tried to kill herself. She took a bottle of pills and was luckily saved at the hospital emergency room where she again promised to do better and was released to her mother along with pamphlets and phone numbers of places and people to call for help. Londa struggled with at times overwhelming guilt and frustration but vowed to make a change, if not for her daughter, then at least for herself. She began going to a therapist and Al-Anon, and gathering support from people for whom addiction and brain health held no stigma. She set limits and encouraged her daughter until miraculously one day, her daughter came to her and agreed to an inpatient program. Londa and Tessa still face obstacles, but today Tessa is in school and continuing to work on healing herself and her relationships. 
Most people struggle for years before seeking professional help. According to marriage expert John Gottman, couples wait on average six years of being unhappy before getting help and in the meantime doing damage to themselves and their relationships. Why do you think that happens? Have you known for a period of time that you needed help and waited or put it off or ignored it? There are many reasons we might do that. Some time ago, I accompanied a friend to a local Kaiser facility where she'd made an appointment. And she was nervous about therapy. And as I was telling her she was doing the right thing and no one had to know she was seeing a therapist, we walked under a large sign entitled Mental Health. Now, each specialty had a sign like pediatrics or women's health or lab or x-ray, but walking under that sign, it was clear to everyone in the area why we were there. One of us had a mental problem, and I felt the stigma of that word outside the clinical setting of how I had used it in my work. And certainly as a kid and even beyond, if someone was mental, they were crazy and perhaps dangerous. So I also use the term I think I first heard from Dr. Amen, a psychiatrist and brain disorder doctor. That term is brain health because that's what we're talking about, as well as emotional and relational health. If you noticed a knocking under the hood of your car or acceleration is so sluggish it's difficult to merge onto the freeway or your car sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, you would be in to see a mechanic as quickly as your lethargic car could get you there. Would you put off seeking help if you were having chest pains or fainting spells or couldn't walk? Probably not. The minute something is physically wrong, most of us are off to the doctor. You don't want to risk feeling worse or living in pain or, in the extreme, dying. Well, allowing your emotional and brain health to deteriorate or to ignore the symptoms has no less consequences than if you disregard your physical health. I understand you may feel vulnerable. You may not want to relive past hurts. You may feel you're doing good enough. And you may even feel it would be selfish to spend family resources on something as indulgent as therapy. Medical care, physical and emotional treatment are necessities, not luxuries. They are also investments. This is not only for yourself, but your current relationships, your current children, or those you will have in the future. I want to encourage you to use the same level of care for your brain health and emotional health that you would for your physical health or financial portfolio or even your car. I also would encourage you to think about where you were taught what you know about relationships. Most people typically do not take classes having to do with relationships. So where did you learn how to be in relationship with yourself and with others? Most likely from your family of origin, your mother and father and perhaps siblings, maybe extended family, which is all great if your family was skilled in communication and compassion and confrontation. If they weren't, then you may have learned some very dysfunctional or maladaptive or relationally destructive ways of being in relationship, which you have knowingly or unknowingly carried with you. I often liken family patterns to dress patterns. If my family has used the same dress pattern for generations and I decide I'm not going to do it that way, I don't want the sunbonnet and the large blousey skirt and the built-in apron for my dress. I would like the modern, sleek, little black dress. And I'm going to make that for myself. 
The problem is when I get stressed and I'm not sure what to do, I automatically grab for the little house in the prairie dress pattern. There is a reason that child abuse continues from generation to generation, and it's typically not because the child who grows up decides he's going to abuse his children as he was abused. He knows how horrible it was. And yet when he is in a stressful situation and doesn't know what to do, he abuses his own children despite perhaps years of believing he would never do it. It is often connected to generational patterns and trauma. Also, I want you to know when you hear stories such as the one about Londa and Tessa, the stories I share publicly are either stories of myself or friends and family whom I've asked if I can share their stories, amalgamations of stories that are true, or rarely clients who have provided releases to me to share that information. Even then, I color the story so the person is not identifiable. For instance, if I talk about a mother and her son in Connecticut, you can bet it's probably a father and daughter in Texas. Frankly, I, like many of us, have enough material for myself and my own extended family to fill dozens of podcasts. So let's go through the seven suggestions to hiring a therapist. Number one, do I really need a therapist? If you're asking yourself that question, make an appointment. As a therapist, I look at a number of things, including changes in behavior and what we call impairment of daily functioning, which basically means things aren't working on a day-to-day basis. If a teenager with previously good grades is suddenly coming home with D's and F's, something's up. If someone who was always well-groomed and on time repeatedly arrives late, disheveled, and unable to concentrate, something's up. And if a person normally has healthy friendships and relationships and suddenly they're isolating and alone, something's up. It's time to get help. And if someone has come to you asking if you think they need a therapist, Refer them to this podcast and encourage them to explore that very question with a therapist. Very often the person suffering will go to a friend or family member and sometimes that person is told, as Londa was told by her friends and family, that what they're experiencing is perfectly normal and there's nothing wrong with them and they don't need to seek out professional help. And I think loved ones do this in an attempt to soothe and comfort and normalize the individual, but this approach typically doesn't work as intended. The individual often walks away feeling unheard and feeling worse about themselves. Their experience is minimized and invalidated. If a loved one or a friend tells you they think they need help, no further questions are needed. They need help. Number two, give yourself some time and sit down and list the symptoms or feelings you're experiencing. Write them down because You may get into a therapist's office and forget some of the things that could be important. Sometimes feelings are hard to describe, or you may be emotionally numb and unable to access your feelings. That's okay. Look at things like, how are you sleeping? Nutrition, exercise. Are you feeling sad and is there a pattern to it? Certain times of the day or the week? Do your relationships seem to be more difficult? Are you isolating yourself? Anything that you feel needs improvement or healing or is causing you concern. You may also want to ask someone close to you to help you put together this list. If you're a couple coming in gently and kindly, put together a list of the things you'd like to see improve. If you can, think about what it is you want from counseling before you even get into the first session. If you can't or aren't sure, 
the therapist will help with this step. This is simply a suggestion that might help you have some clarity even before your first session. Number three, roadblocks. So aside from some of the obstacles I mentioned earlier, consider if any of these potential roadblocks to seeking professional help feel familiar to you. One of the biggest I've seen is the difficulty some of us have asking for help. Does that feel familiar? It is sometimes hard to admit to ourselves. The hesitancy or fear or belief that no one will respond if you do ask or the experience that you do it better than anyone else, which by the way can appear arrogant, but is really more often the result of pain and or trauma and can come from many places. People who are raised in abusive or neglectful families often struggle opening up those old wounds and were taught their feelings didn't matter. And often that person, even as a child, was the caretaker and had to have the answers for the others. The child had to act as the parent, the adult, for the damaged or immature or addicted parent or adult. Some of us were raised in families where love didn't feel unconditional, but was performance-based. If you got an A, you were celebrated and loved. If you got a D or, for some, even a B, love was withheld and came tainted with criticism. A friend told me her parents instructed her as a child thusly. They said, you know, life is like a horse race and there are three kinds of people in the world. 10% are losers who never get out of the gate. 80% are also rans who try but never succeed. And 10% are winners. You will be a winner. Never forget that. And she didn't. Her parents' voice was in her head at every turn and she spent her life never feeling quite good enough, second guessing everything she did. And of course, some people were raised with never feeling truly loved and questioning now whether they can love as if it were a skill like playing the piano or speaking a foreign language. They feel they're just too old or too damaged to learn. As Americans, many of us have been raised to believe independence is one of the most important attributes. Ubiquitous phrases like self-made man and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And our cultural focus of self-reliance, often with the message that feelings are secondary or immaterial, and we don't or shouldn't need anyone. People with this mindset are incredibly strong people, not necessarily because of what they've accomplished, but the fact that they have done it while holding such numbness and pain and feeling so alone. And because of the pain and numbness, the person isn't able to experience true intimacy in their relationships and they miss out on the richest part of this life and what it means to be human, interconnected and interdependent. There is a different kind of strength, a healthier kind of courage, the kind of strength and courage it takes to walk into a stranger's office and ask for help, to say, you know, I thought I had it all figured out, but it's just not working for me anymore. For someone who has always had to have all the answers, to ask for help makes us very vulnerable, which we have sometimes been programmed to see as weakness. To examine our hearts and memories and belief systems and relationships to challenge what we have always thought and believed to be true is tremendously terrifying and immensely important, perhaps even life-saving or at least life-giving. There are also cultural roadblocks, and cultural can mean family, heritage, ethnicity, belief systems, how we've always done things, 
our friendship circle. Other people are sometimes our greatest roadblocks, but let's shift our thinking just a little on that. We can blame others and their beliefs for why we're stuck or why we don't access services, even though we might feel the need. What would my family say? Or what will they think? Or in my culture, we don't do that. So how about using a little of that independence and self-reliance and explore for yourself? Maybe others will think less of you, but maybe not. And if you walk away feeling better about you, where does the greater value lie? And here's one of the greatest gifts of therapy. Think about this. How often in life do we have an opportunity to sit with someone and talk about us without interruption, without knowing that person is going to bring the conversation back to themselves, without worry the person is bored or will tell someone or will judge us or treat us differently? How often are we given space in a conversation to speak, pause and consider a thought and speak again without someone else hijacking the conversation? How often in life are we sitting with someone who actually knows how to listen, who isn't talking over us? It is amazing how so many of us have gotten used to and accept poor communication in our relationships. It can be better. Number four, you've decided you do need some help, but now how to pay for it. If you have insurance, contact your carrier and request or go online and look at in-network providers. Also, determine if your insurance pays 100% or just a portion for mental health services. If you have county benefits, contact your county behavioral health office. Most insurance companies don't pay for couples counseling, but I have seen a few that do, and so always encourage clients to understand your benefits. Also, consider looking into employee assistance programs, EAPs, that may be offered by your employers. Sometimes those offer a limited number of sessions within network providers, and you can contact them through your human resources department or your employer. Another avenue is there is often therapeutic coverage for anyone who's been the victim of a crime through the California Victim Witness Assistance Program in the district attorney's office. If you don't have insurance or if your insurance providers have no openings, which can often be the case, then you might be looking at private practice therapists like me. To find one, you can go on Google or sites like Psychology Today. Word of mouth is good in terms of trying to find someone. You can always go to the Board of Behavioral Sciences in your state and to confirm your therapist is in good standing and is licensed. School counselors can be a good resource if you're looking for someone to work with children and teenagers. I've also found that in talking about the subject, you might be surprised at how many people are or have used the services of a therapist and might have some good information for you. Asking around as you would for any professional, whether it's a dentist, a plumber, a landscaper, or a therapist. Number five, what kind of professional do I need? Again, if you have insurance, they can direct you to the professionals that are available to you. If you don't have insurance for emotional health, starting with a therapist who can then discuss referrals to possibly a psychiatrist or other professionals. And just because it comes up in sessions, I wanted to cover that psychiatrists are medical doctors who attended medical school and chose to go into psychiatry instead of urology or surgery or pediatrics. They can provide uh, talk therapy, psychotherapy, and they can prescribe medication. Uh, psychologists have a doctorate in psychology, and they'll typically see clients or in certain situations like a school setting, 
They do a lot of testing of students. And then the three licensed marriage and family therapists, licensed clinical social worker and licensed professional clinical counselors are licensed with the state. They have master's degrees and they focus on the clinical practice of psychotherapy. They also go through rigorous training like in California, we're required to work 3,000 hours under clinical supervision to hopefully ensure uniformity and quality of services. In general, if you're seeking therapy, a competent professional with one of these three designations will suffice. And by the way, you do not have to be married to see a marriage and family therapist. I keep waiting for the powers to be to change this antiquated title. Uh, number six is interview your therapist. A lot of people don't do this, but interview not only the one you think you might like, interview so, several of them. You have a name or several names and you know how you're going to pay. You know you need or want to see someone and you know at least in part why you need to see them. And you're aware maybe of overcoming the obstacles that got you this far. Pick up the phone and make an appointment. I offer a 15 minute no charge in person or phone consultation as do many other professionals. It helps to get a sense of where you'll be meeting and with whom. Call them and if they don't offer an introductory meeting, ask them if they'd be open to doing so. It may feel overwhelming, but I remember hearing in grad school that up to 70% of people feel slightly better just making an appointment with a therapist. And the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology published a study stating 88% of people, now that's 88% of people reported feeling better after just one session with a therapist. Now, of course, one session is not going to work miracles and heal all the wounds, but what I believe this study indicates is a sense of hopefulness, reaching out and being met with resources and compassion and positive regard and listening does not cure depression, but it can provide hope, something that's often in short supply when someone is depressed. Ask the therapist about their experience and training. Ask about confidentiality and the limits to that, as well as rates, policies around missed sessions and other things that can come up in the course of seeing a therapist. Tell them what you want from therapy and ask if they feel they have the experience and training to help or if they have referrals. And number seven is see your doctor. One of the things I tell almost every one of my clients on their first or second session is to see their doctor to rule out any conditions that might be causing or contributing to their symptoms. In referring clients to their primary care physicians, clients have returned to me to announce they are now being treated for stroke, heart disease, high blood pressure, thyroid conditions, allergies, pulmonary obstruction, sleep apnea, obesity, traumatic brain injuries, anemia, dehydration, and hormone imbalances, just to name a few. And I ask clients, be specific with your doctors. Ask for a thyroid test. Ask for a full CBC blood panel to look at vitamin and mineral levels. Ask for hormone tests. Be honest with the physician and tell them you're asking for any testing that might explain the symptoms you're experiencing. I believe in taking this preemptive step prior to seeing your new therapist, if you can, as it allows you to go in with more information and may, maybe even a diagnosis, and it can sometimes save a few sessions. And a gentle caveat for these steps, please also know if you don't prepare questions and you don't go to the doctor and it took all your energy simply to make the decision 
and make the phone call to schedule the first session, it is perfectly okay. All you have to do is walk in that door or get on that telehealth screen. Your therapist will guide you in this process. This is an exciting journey in pursuit of your best self, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It will require hard work, but you will be heard and seen, and you will be challenged. Welcome, and I'm so glad you found your way here.